and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We are here today with a book club episode. Joining me is my co-host, Amanda. Hello, Amanda. Hello. Welcome back to another book club. Are you excited? I am always excited. Me too. I'm, I'll admit I'm. this is the first one I've been nervous for because this book is complex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the first one I, when upon finishing it, I was like, oh shit, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> uh, not, that, not that there's a lack of things. Uh, let's, I'll, I'll stop teasing it, I suppose, for you listeners. We are going to cover today a book called Sing, Unburied, Sing, which is by Jessman Ward. It was written, I think, recently in like 2017 or 18, won a bunch of awards, did the whole award circuit, won the National Book Award and some other prizes, and was quite lauded and praised. This one, if you haven't been following us, is going to be another entry in our book club series featuring Black American writers. We've been doing this throughout a lot of 2020 and for the foreseeable future, we'll be doing it as just part of our efforts to engage with and sort of promote conversations around people of color in the United States and Black American experience. This is how we felt a couple months ago we could best contribute to the causes, the activism happening in the country, and some of the social unrest that's going on. So this is, we figured on the pod, one way that we could do something, and we're going to continue to do it. Um, we've been trying to hit one book a month. I know this month we're coming in a little bit late, not too late though, um, yeah. but let's just attribute that to this book being challenging. I don't know. I'd, <laughs> I didn't, um, when I started reading it, I, I didn't stop for prolonged periods of time, but uh, it did kind of put me off at the beginning, or I had a hard time get, digging into it. But um, once I did, I felt pretty satisfied. I'm not mm -hmm. sure what your general reaction was. I really enjoyed it from the beginning. I think I I got it. Yeah. Uh, all all of it was read by me, including like intro and the the back stuff and everything. I think I read all of that in about three days. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, really devoured it. Yeah. It depends on. I find these days that my reading sessions never go beyond really two hours. I think that's mm -hmm. about my. I don't know if that's a quarantine thing or just personal life thing, but if I find myself, it takes a really plot heavy, simple story to like kick me past two hours. You know. Mm -hmm. So I, I read it in two hour installments. I think I read it in a week once I finally committed to it. I was just so, I was trying to wrap up other books and I'd started too many things. It's just a consistent problem in my life. I just begin too many books and uh, don't finish them as often as I should or as too quickly. Too many books is a great problem though. Like. I think so. I think so. Except for when you have deadlines and you're recording a podcast, but that's, yeah, well. a, you know, problems for a select group of people. For you listeners out there, this is a book well worth exploring and we're going to do so today because if you were not aware, a book club episode, which this is, I keep pronouncing that very distinctly because these are the deep dive episodes. So these are the analytical breakdowns. We go full into the text. We will be spoiling everything. Nothing from the story is not fair game. So that was a wordy way to say that. Everything is fair game. That's the more <laughs> concise way to put it. <laughs> it is almost 10 p.m. So let's get into this. Uh, that's why I'm speaking myself in circles. So yeah, book club episodes, the entire novel or the work that we've read is fair game. We'll be discussing anything that we want to, including criticism outside of the work. We always, at the end, have a segment for critical thoughts beyond our own. We uh, you know, consult reviews or criticism or articles. And so we will even be discussing things beyond it. If that bothers you and you haven't read this, then go read it. I think I can casually recommend it as a challenging but interesting work. I think Amanda agrees, right? Yep. 
for sure. There you, there you go. Uh, but if you don't mind and you want to listen to the conversation anyway, we would love to have you. And of course, if you've read it, then you have found us in exactly the right position. Hopefully, you've got your copy at the ready and can join us for some critical discussion. Let's begin our book club as we always do with a fill-in-the-blanks prompt. I did write this one, so Amanda, I'll throw it to you and I'll, I'll start it off. Sure. I put down that the animal that I would most like to shepherd me into the afterlife would be a blank because blank. So could you fill in those blanks? <laughs> I sure can. Um, I said that the animal for me would be a cat, unsurprisingly. Um because for me, maybe not for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, to you, it's unsurprising. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one of the major reasons being that I, I just love cats. Um, I mean, I don't understand people who don't. Um, but also, cats are often associated with the afterlife in a positive way. Yeah. And so they're kind of like in a lot of um, literature and archetype, cats are the the um, kind of like guardian spirits to lead you through the afterlife in a lot of ways. And um, right. also it just the cats are going to be uh, creatures that are more picky and... Um, yeah, it wouldn't be very welcoming. They'd it, probably just, you know, they'd probably just be like, oh, "Come on, I guess, you know, follow <laughs> yeah. if you want to." <laughs> yes, they're they're not overly warm, um, but they are like nitpicky and stuff like that. So I would trust them to lead me down like a safer and less like um, dirty and you know other negative things. Like it would be a nice, clean, pristine way to the afterlife. <laughs> yeah. I think when I was thinking about this, the cop out answer I would have would be anything but a snake because I've, I have a fear of those. Oh, but yeah. I think when you when you look at the creatures that's presented in the book, it's kind of like a snake that morphs into a bird, right? It's right. kind of a hybrid animal mm-hmm. creature. I think there's just too much chaotic energy between those two beings. Like birds are, I mean, I guess birds kind of mellow out, but like when they're in flight and in action, they can be so sporadic and snakes again, like I know they spend a lot of time sleeping, but they're, they can be so aggressive and violent too, if provoked. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's bad energy coming off of both of those creatures. So I went with something far more relaxed, something that can get into, for example, a hibernation mindset. So I'm going with bear. I think bear would be calming, uh. especially since, you know, it's not going to maul you. I mean, you, you no need to be afraid because it's just there to kind of talk to you and, you know, have you follow it and take guidance from it. Mm-hmm. I feel like bears that like active and then hibernate kind of feeling. If I'm going to be passing into the afterlife, I hope, I hope it's going to be like a type of hibernation. I think, I mean, certainly the ghosts in the story were presented as kind of tortured because they couldn't move on. And so mm-hmm. I think the bear would bring that calm. I I guess whatever creature brings the calming energy I'm on board with. Certainly the ones in the book did not make me feel calm at all. When they appeared, it was almost like a taunt. It felt like. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was like intimidating or frightening. (laughs) Yeah, I also do not like snakes. I mean, I think most people don't. But I also have a real dislike of birds. Um, yeah, yeah. People have that fear for real. It's you know Hitchcock movie, right? It goes back. Yeah. I I will not ever watch that movie. Uh, but fair, <laughs> part of the reason fair. is because of their spur. I think you hit it. It's it is their sporadic nature. Even when they are not flying, the way that they walk and move, it's like you never know where their head is going to turn. You don't know when they're going to take off right. into flight. It's just, uh, it's yep. yeah. It is too much chaos for me. Versus a cat that's you know, right. pretty chill a lot of the time. 
Yeah, snake movement is one of the things I find disturbing about it as well. I find it very unpredictable and very unsettling to watch them move around. Yeah, especially when they're getting ready to strike and they just like dart out. Yeah, I don't like that either. Right, no sudden movement. At least a bear, I mean, you're not going to misread it. You know, it's big enough to, you don't have to be worried about like, I know they're agile and fast and what have you, but you're not going to deeply misread their movements. I don't think they're big enough to account for. And I think, again, knowing that it it couldn't kill me anymore, I think a bear would actually be kind of a soothing presence. They're big and fluffy. (laughs) And yeah, can't ask for better than that, I think. Um, (laughs) With those out of the way, let's jump to a new segment, Amanda's creation. What do you want to call it? The highlight segment? The recommendation segment? What do you think? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, the highlight segment, we could even say the the Russell French. Oh, okay. The in memoriam. You want to do what's good? Okay. We're going to preface our deeper discussions with this segment then the what's good about it in memoriam russell french rest in peace segment we took this from the book reviews episode essentially we, we just want to highlight something right up front that we really liked about reading this just to give you a broad overview of where we're at i guess mentally with the work and how it settled in and how we thought about it uh, i don't mind going first since i made you on the last one though i think ours are pretty yeah Ours overlap. Similar, yeah. It, yeah, it's funny that when, because when I fill this outline in, and I don't know if you're this way, I never check anything you write. I, on per- very purposefully so, because I don't, I don't want anyone's thoughts to influence my own until I've written mine down. And then I'll have, you know, it's the same with criticism, right? When I'm reading a book, I don't want to read reviews of it. I'll go right. read all of them when I'm done. I just, I like to have, I don't know, my own experience first at any rate. Um, But you and I kind of have similar things here. And so I didn't know that until I just checked them, but we do. (laughs) I I put down something more specific, which is this is like the, those online master classes. This is the one for the, for simile construction, simile writing. I think Mm -hmm. it is so rapid fire, the imagery and the figurative language that she's throwing at you in this book, in this novel. And you just got to try and keep up with it. And almost to the point of you don't want to overthink one of them because another one's coming right up. So it's kind of like if you're the person who in the middle of a paragraph is going to stop for a minute and turn a simile over in your mind, this is going to be an exhausting thing to read. I think I took them, you know, some deeply and some not so much. And so I, I think I enjoyed it really well. And there's a certain type of math here where because she throws so many darts at the dartboard, I guess a lot of them are bullseyes in that metaphor. Like it, mm-hmm. it, she does do really well with it. Most of the time, I don't know if it all works, but there's just so much of it that I think if you're looking to kind of look into that study of language, you really can't go wrong here with this book. And I want to do one thing quickly live on the pod. This is going to be Uh-oh. edited later. So, you know, live for you, <laughs> I'm going to pick a random page number. I'm going to say it out loud. Actually, why don't you pick it? Because you didn't know I was going to do this. And I bet you okay. I will find a simile on that page. It might be to the point where there's over one per page in this novel. There might be like 500 similes in this book. I will choose the page 242. 242. Checking it live. <laughs> I'm looking it up now. I don't know if our page numbers are the same, but it's fine. I have a 242. I'm just reading from the top here. Let's see. As soon as I get to it, I'll read it out loud. I'm just going to have to cut this dead air. Maybe I'll leave it in. Hmm. I see several on my page. There's a simple one here. It's more of a comparison, though. It says, for a breath, someone is there, someone with a face like JoJo's, but that's more literal. Oh, I see. Yeah, go further down. The air feels like Mm -hmm. needles. There's one. There might be another. No, one per page. That's a pretty light page. Yeah. 
There's a metaphor at the top, though, because it says they rend no doorways to that golden aisle. And that mm-hmm. aisle's, I guess it's not really a metaphor. It's more of like a dream image or something. But there we go. One per page. That's all I wanted to demonstrate is that I am almost certain you could do that on literally every page. It's very, I, the word, I don't know if you noticed this in the reviews, but the word that came up constantly in all the professional reviews of this book is lyrical. That's mm-hmm. how they describe her style. She's very lyrical or poetic. And yeah, I think it fits. It's because a lot of this is written like a poem that you just decipher or that she just constructs into a paragraph. So I think it's that kind of, that kind of writing style. And it's a yeah, I would say it's a bit of a masterclass and I think most of it works really well. Mm-hmm. So how about for you, Amanda highlights? Uh, my highlight is pretty much the same. So I said that uh, her unique descriptions, especially her use of metaphors and similes are um, unique. They create a clear tone and mood, and they also like further align with her motifs. She's got several motifs going on in this novel, and I think that her similes, her descriptions, are usually tied to that overall motif. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get into those in the questions, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're they're certainly not wasted. I think it's again, it's dense with them, and when something is written in this dense a way. I just simply don't believe a person could make all of it just to perfection, so to speak. But it's quite excellent. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of it. Let's begin with some questions then. Uh, I'm going to throw one at you, Amanda, since you had uh, I kind of stole your thunder there on the what's good about it segment. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> but what can we do? There, you know, it's we chose the same thing. It's um, it's a work that it's really great. shouts. <laughs> yeah, it really screams that. It, you, you will notice it immediately in the first mm-hmm. chapter. Like it's. It's written in such a stylistic, stylized way, rather, that, yeah, you just can't help but think about it throughout the entire work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw a question at you, then, that, again, both of us wrote. And to be clear, we wrote these independently of one another, but we <laughs> just so happened upon one shared question. And it was just basically like, what's Kayla doing in this story? You know, right. what is her significance? I think by the end, it's almost explained directly, not quite directly, but there's a couple lines at the conclusion that make it pretty clear why she was such a meaningful part of the family in the story. But either before or during that, how did you interpret her? How did you find her place or what did you find her place in the family to be? So I was uh, struggling with that for a little while after I finished the novel, because it's like you said, such a, a complex novel, but I think that she plays actually a couple of roles. Um, in the novel. So one role in, in direct relation to Jojo, um, she is, um, she brings out the mothering, the parenting in him that is so absent in Leone. So it helps to further right. make Jojo um, mature and also right. almost more uh, womanly in a, in a lot of ways, even though Jojo is male um, mm-hmm. as far as his gender. So it's, it's, I think that plays an, uh, an important role. She also is the the thing that causes the most trouble, right? The person that causes the most trouble right. on the way up to right. the um, to parchment, and so she's she's ill, she's sick more more than the people who go buy meth. You would say, right? Yeah, <laughs> isn't that crazy though? Because she's the one that like it, she makes it miserable for everyone. Yeah, by, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's like a form of almost torture for the people in the car. <laughs> um, I think I was, I was inspired to write this question the most, even though I wrote it after I finished the book. But the descriptions of her vomiting in this book and how often that comes up, it just because 
I don't think I even have a, a phobia of vomit, but the number of times that she pukes and the way it's described just it really did get to me at some point. I was like, man, I wish this would stop. <laughs> I, just, I wish I didn't yeah. have to read about her puking again. And so I think yeah. just as a, as a sort of symbolic uh, person in the story, I was just intrigued by why she kept doing it. kept happening. You know, just when you thought it would end, it happens again. Yeah. I'm wondering if, if it has ties to, because it's also kind of like a ghost story. Does it have ties to um, the scenes from the exorcism? where it's just like a cleansing, right. almost like an inner cleansing, because her sickness is never actually explained away later. They're just like, oh, no, well, that happened, no. and then like she stops. But it's right, never really right. like explained why she was sick in the first place, which makes me think that, okay, yeah, maybe it's um, car sickness, right? Um, right, right. Or it's something to do with like, some kind of purge, right? And what could that purge be is is a question that I keep coming back to. I think that's the right kind of inner, not intertextual, but like subtextual reading, I think is right. That it's, this is a family, this is a trip where ghosts need to be purged. Like they, yeah. they are seeking to leave. They, they want to, they want to go sing. They don't want to be ghosts anymore. At least Richie explicitly does not want to be. And mm -hmm. I, we're assuming that Given doesn't want to be either just because right. of the way he's around. And then he actually speaks at the end, which I guess that's Leone's perspective in that chapter. It must be. But it, it's clear that they are unsettled, uncomfortable, and they want to pass into some afterlife. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's a story of like not only purging history, because then there's the revelation with the father, right? Like he needed to say that to someone. Right. But yeah, it's just so many of the people, there's literal people sick. There's people deathly sick. It, it did feel, I guess, in that sense, just like tonally coherent. But I think that purge idea is probably thematically right where I settled. Mm -hmm. I also just felt kind of until the ending, though, until a couple of those threads came together. Right. I just thought she was a vector for other characters. Like you said, with Michael or not. Mm -hmm. Wait, with she's Jojo. Michaela. Jojo. There we go. I was like, that's a different person. Um, <laughs> Michael's the, the father, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But no, for him too, though, because he hits her. And so as soon as he gets back, it's like a test for him. She's mm -hmm. a test for her mom and her mom's like dispassionate, kind of uncaring right. uh, throughout the story. She's a she's a vector for the father because you see or the grandfather because you see his more like nurturing instinct, which is then contrasted with he, that he murdered someone kind right. of out of love. And that raises another complex question. At any rate, I just read her as, yeah, it was it felt like for too much of the story, it was just the outlet to show Jojo's compassion, I guess, is how I was reading mm -hmm. it. So it felt a bit repetitive to me in a way I didn't really need. I, I felt like it didn't get to that complexity at the end, but it did get there. So I guess it's to the story's credit. Like in the right. end, I was reading her pretty, I was like, man, there's some, yeah, complex things going on, even with the with the just ridiculous vomit, the constant vomiting, it felt like to me. <laughs> yeah. um, but so anyway, and I think that, again, it, it gives a sense of, even when they're in the car, you think things will be nice and relaxed. Like, oh, we got some ice cold Cokes and we're just chilling in the car. And she's, but then, you know, of course there has to be something unwell about the whole endeavor. It can't right. be, it can't be some smooth, calm road trip with great weather. It's got to be some like disgusting, tortured event. And so right. it worked in that regard too. But yeah, I, I think I, re I was reading her that way until the end. So yeah, me too. It, she was definitely, I, I thought that maybe her role in that, that aspect was to kind of like highlight the, um, the dysfunction between Jojo and Leone right, and right. to also highlight um, 
Leone's maternal or lack of maternal instincts in a lot of ways. It does hurt her to see Kayla sick, but she's not panicky and she doesn't stop right. the trip at all. Right. She yeah. stops long yeah. enough to like try to gather some uh, blackberry. Right. It was blackberry. Um, yeah. But she, fa- but she kind of fails and then Jojo yeah. purges her of, you know, yeah. He makes her avoid that because he has no, at some point he says, Leone kills things. Like yeah. there's a line in there. It's just like, she's the agent of death and destruction. Yeah. She doesn't do anything well or doesn't make anything, you know? Right. And so, yeah, he, you know, he comes in with the mother role in that, in that moment, which yeah, yeah is I think the best way to read him too. Let's um, I'm going to just throw another one of my questions at you though, because yeah. I thought it was a really great one. And then I actually looked at the damn cover because the birds thing was getting to me by the end. There's obviously the, the kind of angel of death bird or whatever, however we want to describe that, the afterlife creature mm-hmm. that comes and sees Richie. And by, uh, the reference to the cover, by the way, I didn't even really notice this. There's a bird on the cover. But my, yeah. my other question was just basically like, how are you reading birds in this, like symbolically or as a motif or what have you? I, the, the time when I noticed it beyond... It seemed like every setting they arrived at, there would be a commentary on whether the birds were staying or going or whether they were making noise or not. Make, like, I think the first time I noticed it is when they get to Parchman, there's like, a, I think, a mass exodus or something of birds when they arrive there. Mm-hmm. And from there, it just became some thing that it felt like at every t- turn of the story, there had to be there had to be a little birds check in. So I mean, how are you reading this? What's your, what's your interpretation of the, of the birds? Well, birds also um, archetypally have connections to death, right? Like ravens and crows and vultures right, yes. and things like that. So I think she, uh, Kayla first notices Richie in the field at Parchman and she calls him the bird man. Right. Yeah. Uh, before yeah. Jojo even notices him. Right. Um, so, but the reason for that Birdman is uh, that she was calling him Birdman is because Richie was both serpent and snake or serpent and bird. And right. I think it's like that contrast. And I think that the serpent is also meant to be um, the archetypal, like uh, temptation and evil and things like that. Things that keep you grounded within the earth because you just can't get past that certain thing you that can't you want. transcend there's right. a certain i mean there's an obvious archetypal thing with birds about freedom you know yeah. just that you know soaring in the skies being limitless weightless there that stuff is a pretty clear read i think too so yeah those it's a good contrast of creatures i think so and then like even in the end the other spirits that are there that that want to hear the song that want to return to the song but they can't get to the song yeah. they're all perched in a tree too like birds and yeah, the, but yeah. the imagery is specifically for me when i imagined it, it they were like vultures they were sitting there and waiting for yeah. some kind yeah. of something that they could just take hold of but not actually you know take the initiative to go and do it and, and it fits too because jojo's response is to be annoyed and kind of haunted by them like he turns right. his back on them you know he does it's not like he wants yeah. to be engaging with them he doesn't want to it doesn't seem like he wants to save them or offer any help not that he would understand how to i suppose but right. yeah it's it's a very cold reaction to them they're they're haunted figures for sure and they when they do their little um uh, stream of consciousness monologue they've all been murdered or, or right. raped or executed it's it's like they described in the story it's like people left behind because god couldn't he turned away because their death was so gruesome you know he doesn't right. want to claim them because of how grisly their ends were and so yeah it just is this haunted kind of 
like really sad scene. Yeah. It fits with that perfectly. And Kayla is the one to sing to them and bring them some semblance of peace. Yeah. I was trying, I'm going to go on a quick aside here. I was trying to dig up the quote when they see the birds leaving the prison. Instead, I came across this uh, from page 179 quote. Yeah. And she's vomiting so hard, her back curves like an angry cat's. I mean, (laughs) Mm -hmm. how many ways can you describe? It's it's a great description. Like (laughs) if anyone who's ever had cats that has seen them stretch, you know, or seen them jump in fright, it's like such... Just to imagine a human spine doing that to wretch is just disgusting to me. I don't know. It just, it really bogged me down. Also, that was not Kayla though, by the way. That was describing when they're, um, when Leone had swallowed the meth. Yeah. So <laughs> diff- different person, but still, I just feel like there, it, there was just sickness all over this book. It, there really you know, was. People are just unwell in this par- uh, part of the world. Uh, yeah. So that, I'm glad that was a good answer to that question though. I think. Yeah, by the ending, you're right. That that final tree image, that's one of the last things in the whole story, right? Is when he kind of turns away from them and they're singing. Yep. And Richie is still unsatisfied. He's like still trapped in the earthly realm. Yeah, he's like at the root, right? He buries himself down into the root of the tree, but then he turns into the serpent and climbs up onto the branch, but he doesn't realize that he's also the serpent. Yeah. Yeah, so. feels rather feels rather stuck. Yeah. Did you have any questions you wanted to throw out there? Sure. Um, so talking about motifs and stuff, uh, there was a lot of water imagery um, and yeah. references yeah. in the novel. So I was just wondering, like, how do you think that this this particular the water imagery? How does that play a part in the overall message or the other motifs in the story? How do, is it effective? Is it as strong as like the song motif right even in the novel the, uh, the i think it's title. yeah <laughs> i think it's a regional ode that's kind of how i was reading it since her other novel salvage the bones is about hurricane katrina and there's a the father in that story is obsessed with preparing for it and like boarding up the house and it, at any rate so mm-hmm. that that novel is about that event but i think because her fiction is just so regional and regionalized to that mississippi alabama gulf coast area a lot mm-hmm. of the things you notice in here it's it's people have the saltwater stink on them. You know, that's how he knows that Jojo is his son. Cause he would, he would know that smell anywhere. I think I'm going to pull a quote like that later when we get to the syntax, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it's a lot of just people who are deeply embedded in the region have that kind of saltwater smell and feel about them. Mm-hmm. So I think that w- that was my reading for the most part. It also allows her to bring up. And again, I think I pulled a quote on this later, but it allows her to bring up images of kind of, rot and death there's mm-hmm. the event on the michael gets cast off of the he's on the what is it deep water horizon explosion yeah. and so he was on that that oil rig and so there is a sense of i don't know like yeah just sort of this evil that pervades the region and people have it seemingly attached to their person and just co- sort of carried around with them that there's also a differentiation in the text at some point about people from the coast or not from the coast so even even within the state of Mississippi, it seems like a differentiation that people would pick up on or maybe would notice that if you're from that specific part of the world that even within Mississippi, where it seems, I don't know, I've never been to the state, right? My perceptions are pretty skewed to my own, but it seems like the accents or something would be regional enough to where you'd probably be able to figure it out. But I'm sure within Mississippi, there's clear divides between regions and counties, you know, like, Mm. like in other States. So no, I was reading it that, that way. It it kind of defines the family. It gives some history to their 
experience. It also kind of harkens back a little to the to the mother grandmother character because she clearly has some ties to like she talks about voodoo and and gods and, and goddesses from uh, from Haiti. I think a mm-hmm. lot of that ancestry comes from and then well from Africa, Haiti through Africa, and so. Yeah, I think it, it kind of calls back to that too. It's like they're they're stuck on the coast. They're like trapped in the sea where they arrive from. Presumably, has some kind of slave lineage. I don't think that I don't think they mentioned that directly, but they don't, really don't have to. It's the region is so it's so interwoven into the region's history that it kind of yeah. speaks for itself. And it yeah, I think it just harkens back to for a story that's so clearly about family lineages and, and histories. I think that it helps with that too. I don't know if in comparison or contrast to the singing, I liked it more or less, so to speak, but I think mm-hmm. they both worked. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Was there one that you found more profound than the other? I, the song uh, motif like didn't really come together for me until the end, but like with yeah, the, yeah, yeah. With the water one, I was thinking that it was for me, I, I tied it to actually the whole purging process as well, because water mm-hmm. is a, an act of purification a lot of the time. And no, not uh, here. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I don't know. Partially. It's, it's weird though, because um, for example, when uh, on the road trip, when Leonie is drinking the Coke and Jojo keeps saying that he's thirsty and she's like drinking the Coke in front of him and won't yeah. give him a sip and she won't let him get a water or anything. The only right. way that he can, he can quench his thirst is like, as he's pumping the gas, he's just gulping at the rain as it's like falling out of the sky. He's mm-hmm. gulping at this water and then he's, he feels satisfied. Yeah. So if for me, I was thinking, okay, so that's like um, maybe significant. Um, but also I was thinking that it was tied to um, uh, there was another scene, I think with um, the, with ma'am, the, the grandmother and she was, had something mm-hmm. to do with water and it was almost like a baptismal scene there too, which is um, often, an archetypal thing for water is to be uh, baptism yeah, and cleansed or yeah. yeah, purified of your sins. Yeah. And I was thinking too, that it both Philomene, uh, ma'am, uh, the grandmother and pop, um, they both uh, are very connected to nature in a lot of ways. Yeah, and- certainly. Certainly he is her. Yeah. She's interesting. Cause you mostly get her from, histories and backstories and stuff she's not very active in the story but even he is actively you know engaged within a part of nature he opens it by by killing one of his goats yeah (laughs) and his name is river Mm -hmm. right right and and uh philamine she you know is connected to nature in that she um uses uh the herbs and stuff like that in order to help people um, feel better right. and, and stuff like that. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. The backstory with okay, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Remember, yes, yeah. They give that little flashback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was, I was thinking of it as like, okay, maybe not only purging, but also to show that connection to nature. And for you, it was a connection to the location specifically, which is also a connection to um, the the natural aspect of that part of the the coastal Mississippi. Right, yeah, the 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 rural people of the coast that she depicts, yeah, very much live off of the land in a way that uh, certainly I have never had to understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, I can claim to buy organic, but I certainly have never raised and slaughtered my own animals. So yeah. there's a 
you know, there's a reliance on nature and a reliance on the land that is foreign, I think, probably to so the majority of Americans for sure. Mm-hmm. And speaking worldwide, who knows? I, I won't speak to that. But certainly in America, that it would be a foreign notion to most people. Oh, I just realized that Kayla, <laughs> sorry, uh, mm-hmm. Kayla was um, sick the whole way up to Parchman, right? But then when they were coming back down, she was okay. So maybe it's the idea of like going away from home made her right, sick. Right. And then the return to home is what made her feel better. Yeah, definitely. It could yeah. be. I mean, they, they all suffer. They all suffer when they try and escape, right? They all yeah. they, they all kind of when they try and get out of their their zone of um what's it called? Boy, uh, this is where we'll get into the French. Boy, boy sauvage, something oh. like that. Oh, I don't know. It, that's the region. I, I know only know that because it was in oh, the right. review. Yeah, something like that though. But at any rate, yeah, the further they get, it certainly feels more alien and dangerous to them. I mean, the road trip mm-hmm. is, has its, has dangers along the way, and so yeah, it does feel like they are anchored. In a, in a sense, and need to rely on being close to that region. I'm going to throw out one more question that I want us to answer quick before we do quotes, only yeah. because I feel like it would be insane to not at least poke at this notion or this like theme of the text. Though, to be honest with you, in a wild way, it really didn't strike me as one of the key like pillars of this book, which again, feels insane to say as I'm about to ask this question. Like, how did you read this book as a text about race in America and especially like white supremacy? It just, I guess to me by the end, I don't know if it had any cohesive uh, uh, message or effect. Not that it has to, it's a novel. I don't need it to be a sociology textbook or whatever, but it, the, the cop incident felt so blatantly inserted. Whereas every other interaction felt more subtle than that. Like the fact that Michael's white and there's, and his family is racist and deals with the family in a explicitly racist fashion. Everything else felt, I don't know, more interwoven. Mm -hmm. And then the, the officer incident just felt like a real, like, punch just like hey like don't do you get it like look this is a you know thematically we have to deal with this this is this part of the world and this is the history and so i i don't know if it felt totally coherent to me which again feels absurd to say if if we did a reading of this through that lens there'd be a lot we could talk about but i'm not Mm -hmm. sure how you felt and reacted to it if it felt cohesive or had some clear message or something i think that uh for me what actually stood out to me more and what I picked up on more were the more subtle examples of racism yeah. in, in the story. And actually one of my quotes, uh, I chose one of my quotes explicitly to show that subtle. Yeah. Um, Let's just jump example. into the syntax celebration then go, we yeah. can kick it off with that. Go ahead. Yeah. What quote sure. is that? So uh, that is from, that's my last quote. Um, I chose one where Jojo is actually, they're on their way back from Parchman after they got Michael. And this is after the police incident. Yeah. And um, Leone is um, kind of like passed out from the meth because she's just like, you know, starting to feel the effects of it. So they're getting charcoal well, she had, and all that stuff. When, when she had significantly overdosed, like yeah. a lethal dose. She had yeah. like eaten a bag to hide from the cops. Yep. Um, yeah, because the door, the floor door was blocked. Right, right. Um, so uh, he's interacting with the gas station attendant, and he says um, he stretches out his words so they seem to loop between us, and I have to translate to understand what he says through the accent. I lean forward. He moves back just a step, small as a slivered fingernail, a twitch. I remember I'm brown, and I move back too. So. 
my uh sorry uh jojo is what he's like 11 or something like that right yeah right on that age of there's a leone talks a lot about like his body growing into you know he's at the interim stage of right looking older but not be but being kind of fleshy you know yeah. be having the young like baby fat on him and yeah he's at that he's between that whatever that age range would be like 11 yeah. to 13 ish 14 ish yeah not not quite at uh, puberty level yet and right yeah um yeah. So this this guy, it's what I found really interesting about the scene too is the attendant who takes a step back from this young boy because he's black and therefore is threatening, right? Right. Um, right. Is that this is a, also somebody who is um, he's got he's described as like yellow all over except for his big bushy like black beard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he has an accent, a foreign accent, so. It's funny to, it's not funny, haha, but it's just like ridiculous to me that somebody who is also a minority, right? Somebody who right. is an outcast in a lot of ways in, in um, society would react that way to a child because that child is of color. Well, and this has explicitly come up, when granted, well, this is such a relevant connection. What I was just going to preface it by saying, we, we're not a current events pod, so don't expect that kind of analysis. But this is just such an explicit connection. That language comes up in any of the pick pick one of the numerous killings that have happened between the police and black men in the last however many years. I guess women too. But I don't think the Breonna Taylor case. I saw any rhetoric like this, but it's the rhetoric that always comes up, which is like he looked older, he looked threatening to me, yep. he was bigger, he was really big, or yep. you know, like really, and it's like he was 14. Like I, you know, uh, you're claiming something that simply cannot be, you know, like it Mm -hmm. at any rate. So that kind of the, the misperception or the like really distorted perception uh, of those young, like black men is something that, yes, that, yeah, that was a really striking moment. And the, the police officer interaction, you could say had the same kind of effect going on. I mean, he was treated like a threatening adult with a gun. Right, even though he was just, it was just his juju bag, right? It's right. His, uh, the bag that Pap had given him. But yeah. yeah, and then there's also like numerous examples, especially from Leone, because Leone is especially sensitive to the subtleties of, of the divide yeah. in race. So right. she pointed out with like her best friend there, Misty, she's like, oh, and the, yeah. she specifically talks about white privilege um, and things like that. But I, I chose this scene too because uh i wanted to point out that there's also this person that is reacting is also a minority and there's and i think it's interesting that uh minorities are kind of like there's so much distrust between minorities um which is one of the reasons why they you know it's it's tougher to get everybody together to to work towards a positive change is there's even now there's some um, some people out there saying things about I don't want to get too political, but about Asians in particular, which is hits home for me since I'm half Korean, um, where mm-hmm. they're saying, oh, uh, Asians are white adjacent. I'm like, what what does that even mean? You're saying that I I am pretty much just white, even though my mother is from Korea. She is pretty much white. you're erasing her identity as somebody who has right. a very rich cultural background. Like that is anyway, 
not to not to get on my soapbox, but I just See, thought that it was interesting. See, what you're trying to do again is you're trying to provoke my you're trying to provoke my Marxism, and I won't stand for it because <laughs> I have answers to your questions, but I will not give them. <laughs> I just refuse. I refuse to be engaged in this manner. Not until not until we do that on the book club officially. I'm I'm just joking, but no, I I understand. I've seen yes the kind of um, weird factionalism yeah. that can occur. Yeah, and almost a, I don't know, I was going to say race to the bottom. That's more of an economic theory. But yeah, there's a certain like denigration or sort of, um, this was a a weird effect I noticed when I was in TFA. It was sort of like a who has it worst competition in a sense. And it was sort of just like a, becomes a bragging about, it's like misery Olympics. And you just see who can, who can discuss their own pain in the most coherent and profound way. And then they- I don't, it's not like there's a winner per se in this metaphor. I guess there would be, but yeah, it, it becomes a very skewed, weird discussion where there's yeah. no chance to build coalitions because it's just, yeah, it's a very inverted, odd competition, very, very destructive one at times. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of, um, uh, when I studied uh, progressive movements and stuff like that in, in college, one of the things that was pointed out is like, when you get to a certain point within um, a movement, there's going to be factions that break off because they feel like one group or one specific piece of that group needs more distinction than the other piece. So like with feminism, you actually have that, you have the umbrella feminism, but then you have different factions within the feminism and then feminism as a minority rights uh, movement, but then it's separated from Black Lives Matter. It's separated from um, other Asian Americans. It's separated from right. They, they all just break off instead of it all being like one unified. Like, hey, everybody matters. Like, I don't want to say it like that, but like all minorities, including you know all races, including um, all gender types, including all um, LGBTQ rights, and all that stuff should be fought for on everybody's behalf but then right yeah progressive movements tend to just like kind of break off into smaller pieces like that yeah we i believe have a term for this as well which is called crap i forgot the term intersectionality there you go nice send send that one out to google listeners if you want to expand on what Amanda just said, look up the social theory called intersectionality and you will maybe find some answers that satisfy you or not. No, I think, yeah, those are excellent points. And especially, I mean, this isn't a hundred percent in align with that, but considering the kids in this book are mixed race that they, yeah. you know, come from, they have a bit of both backgrounds in them mm-hmm. is uh, makes for, I, again, it could only complicate the readings. Like when Michael shows up in the story, his his actions. I mean, he's clearly disconnected from pr- from his time in prison. So there's that aspect. But right. yeah, just the worlds that they inhabit and his interactions with his family. It, it all becomes well it becomes messy quickly. But it's that kind of novel. It's not <laughs> yeah. not easy to unravel. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. I'm going to throw out a quote. Then I wanted to jump on the. I was going to segue earlier, but you know we tangented, and that was fun. I like that. But <laughs> I, what I was going to segue onto. No, no, no. It's it's wonderful. These are these are longer pods for a reason, man. This is what we <laughs> this is what we got going on, folks. Um, I was going to segue off of Leone. That's the quote I wanted mm-hmm. to start with. Was one about her. I found her narrative moments to be the most enjoyable to me. I don't know if it was because she was older. She was given the most. I don't know. Adult pressing thoughts. Jojo certainly has his own voice and is a unique character, but 
when I was reading the Leone ones, I connected with the story, I think, the most. Mm -hmm. At any rate, when Michael returns, um, she says the following things. I wish the road ran straight over the water, like the pictures of the bridge I've seen that links the Florida Keys to the coast. Wish it was an endless concrete plank that ran out over the stormy blue water of the world to circle the globe, so I could lie like this forever, feeling the fine hair on his arms, my kids silenced, not even there, his fingers on my arm drawing circles and lines that I decipher, him writing his name on me, claiming me. The world is a tangle of jewels and gold and spinning and throwing off sparks. I'm already home. The notion of home is a really important one in the story. Like, literally, they're going on a road trip, yeah. taking him from his prison home to other home. They also are homeless, so there's that aspect. Like, literally, in the literal sense, they live with their grandparents. Mm-hmm. Like, they keep getting here. I think they were evicted or something. And so they're they're in between homes. But as we've already discussed in so many of the ways this novel treats motifs and symbols and, like, language, that you know, the coast seems to be pulling them back home as well there's mm-hmm. also ghosts in here looking for home the reason i keep saying these repetitive things not only just to imitate the style of the book but <laughs> just to point out that i think a passage like that is really uh beautiful and it hits her character in like a dozen ways that work i think the imagery is striking and fits the coastal kind of vibe it's another mm-hmm. water image where she just wants to like disappear into the ocean you know mm-hmm. and also she explicitly says there i wish my kids were not here and right. so you get a real you get a pretty clear read if that moment it wasn't enough on you know her kind of motherly standing and the way she views her children but also that she has this deep i don't know like textual you know he's writing on her he's almost branding her and claiming right. her she has this deep connection to michael that feels There's a passage at the end, too, I think it's one of the last ones with her, where she kind of folds into his lap like a child. Like, she's infantilized around him, that Mm -hmm. she has a sort of helplessness and just sort of collapses into his being, it seems, when he gets out. And she has no, it seems like she has very little power. And so, I just think that, yeah, and it, but that passage does a lot of what works in the book and what, frankly, if you didn't like it, will not work for you if you're reading this, which is just, it ends with that tangle of jewels and gold spinning, throwing off sparks. I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't, there's not a, a ton of wealth in the story, obviously. It's not, it doesn't seem like something she's desirous over, at least not explicitly, to be, I want to be hyper wealthy or something. It's it's a striking image, but I don't know what to do with it either. And yeah. so, I don't, but then again, it's like, am I overcomplicating this? Everything up to that, I thought was well you know, well-realized it's playing with images and playing with motifs in the story that work. And, but then there's that sense at the end. It just, it feels all very complex and kind of overwhelming to read at times. But I thought that quote was a good representation of the reading experience, so to speak. But I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, and I really liked, as I said at the beginning, the Leone parts, they just kind of work for me in general. I found Leone's character to be really intriguing to try to unravel because she's just got so much, going on with her and yeah yeah um i one of the things that i picked up on here you mentioned in this quote that um she does not want her kids really to be there um and one thing that i picked up on was um for leone it's like and maybe i'm like overreading her or something like that but she said on page it's not one of the quotes that i picked but on page uh 150 she points out that um she says this is right after she and michael uh, have sex after they um 
and get back together. Yeah, when they reunite, yeah. Yeah. I close my eyes and ignore Given Not Given, who is sitting there with a sad look on his face, mouth and a soft frown, and think of Michael, real Michael, and wonder if we had another baby, if it would look more like him than Michaela. If we had another baby, we could get it right. So what I took from that and from her other, and from the fact that she like relaxes her hair, right? Straightens her hair so that it's um, less- More white presenting. More white presenting. And, um, and that statement there makes me, and the fact that she like almost deifies Michael in a way as like almost like a white savior, right? He's the only one that can save her from herself. And then she says that about- um, another baby who would look more white and therefore be more desirable. I just find that really interesting that she seems to dis dislike or just doesn't want to be black and that she, yeah. and, the, and like Jojo is dark like pop. Right. And then mm-hmm. uh, Kayla is, is obviously mixed, right? She's got, kind of goldish curls and her eyes are green, but she's got the, the light brown skin. So you can still tell um, that she's mixed. And so she's hoping for a white baby. And I can actually segue that into my next quote um, Mm -hmm. about ma'am. When, um, when Leonie and ma'am were talking about possibly having an abortion with Jojo, when she first reveals that she's pregnant with Jojo, um, she's describing ma'am and she says, and her skin was white as stone and her hair waving and I thought about the Medusa I'd seen in old movies when I was younger, monstrous and green scaled. And I thought, that's not it at all. She was beautiful as mama. That's how she froze those men with the shock of seeing something so perfect and fierce in the world. And that's from page 158. So here we see she compares her mother to Medusa, but says that her skin is white as stone, right? Again, that imagery of white, therefore beautiful, therefore pure, therefore desirable, and therefore um powerful mm-hmm. so yeah. being a powerful female in from this perspective means being desirable which means being white which yeah. i find very interesting did you did you find what do you think michael desires in leone what do you think he wants out of their relationship or sees sees in it other than the drug connection which their codependency in that regard seems pretty clear by the end Mm-hmm. Cause he immediately folds when she, she kind of like mentions we should do this again. And he, he gives off one sentence of just kind of, you know, I just got out of prison, but then, they're, <laughs> yeah. but then they're off, you know, yeah, then they, then like, they're back please. into it. Yeah. But what do you, then what do you make of her engagement with kind of his whiteness then? Cause I mean, you know, the family loathes them. That couldn't be more clear. And so, yeah. How do you, how do you read that part of it? <laughs> I, I see that as um, kind of like a, so Michael first came into her life because it was his cousin that right. murdered Given. Hadn't and even so- mentioned that yet. That's there's a lot in this book. <laughs> yes, <laughs> one of the major characters is a ghost who had been murdered, or a person who turns into a ghost who follows yeah. her around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and the, and the whole reason for their initial interaction is because he went up to Leone and was like. I'm sorry that my cousin is a murderer and that he's an idiot and I'm sorry for all your pain. So he comes up to initiate that. And then he kind of like takes over just taking care of her. So it seems like Mm -hmm. almost like retribution in a way on his part. It's like, because my family totally messed up your family, let me take care of you. Yeah. He has a guilt. He's like a softness in his heart about it. 
right? And I wonder too, because he's specifically white too. It's that maybe it's the overall umbrella of that. um, The what is it? Is it is it white guilt? Is that what it is? Where you have uh, people who are uh, fighting for minority rights um, specifically Mm -hmm. because they feel guilty for their race. Yeah, that's white guilt. Is that what it is? I associate white guilt. That's kind of it. I associate white guilt with just people who have some kind of sympathy or empathy for current minority experience in America. And then Mm -hmm. they, they just, yeah, they feel guilt over and they don't know what to do with it. They don't like understand how to process or put that into action. They just kind of feel bad. Okay. And so they sometimes, I I usually read that term or see it associated with basically misplaced actions where it's like, instead Mm -hmm. of putting my money to something or getting involved in some kind of campaign or doing some actionable thing with regards to the law, I will instead just tell a person at the Red Lobster that I like their hair and that's how I'm going to assuage my, you know, it's, or mm. I'll compliment someone on their English being really good. Like, I yeah, want to be nice, but I don't, but, it, but, <laughs> but instead of just manifesting like awkward social actions yeah. <laughs> instead of like profound changes. Right. So white yeah. guilt is a negative kind of feeling or a negative in a way. That's what I thought. And that's why I was thinking of that term, I think in in terms of Michael, because he's not actually helping Leone. Right. Um, Yeah. So that's why it's like, he, he feels guilty, but he doesn't know what to do. So he just like gives into whatever, you know, and, 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 and I think he seems characteristically or, in, in deep in his character seems incapable too because of his violent nature and his dependency and his you know emotional state like it doesn't yeah i don't think he's going to be the one to help her heal those wounds or bridge the divide or i don't yeah it's odd i don't view him as kind of a their relationship could be literally read as some kind of bridge but i i didn't read it that way at all either it felt very toxic to me i mean yeah yeah he he is they seem deeply invested in one another and you know they they have like their their romantic encounter is the only sex in the book and it's like a paragraph but you know it's it has some kind of interesting descriptions it all feels very enveloping to them like they love each other or something or they want to express that but no it, yeah it feels quite toxic to me and yeah. not it does not seem like it will heal either of them frankly and yeah, it's certain. I mean, the family is the best sign of that. Like explicitly in the text, is that we're not going to bridge any divides here. Right. This is just going to be some kind of sore that never heals, uh, and you're both in, involved in that now. Yeah, I'm going to jump to one other quote I did want to read, just because the language is quite stirring. I thought mm-hmm. the other quote I'll quickly mention is it's a reference to Hansel and Gretel at the beginning, and there's this bread. He's following the the blood breadcrumbs which works in a lot of levels, mm-hmm. but at the illusions, like you mentioned the Medusa one, the only reason I bring it up is to piggyback on yours. I think they work and they're also pretty light. I, I didn't find, I found it to be yeah. dense, but in the lyrical poetic way, not in the, you have to like reading TSLA, you have to know a hundred things to even understand what this is talking about. Why is there Sanskrit in this poem kind of shit? It's not really <laughs> like that. It's, it's like, you can read this, but there will be a couple of illusions. And I think the beginning of this work does a ton of good heavy lifting. That was the other thing I wanted to mention because mm-hmm. it it establishes quite clearly if you pay enough attention in the first chapter or two, there's enough laid down that if you just stick with those idea threads, you'll be it will be rewarded. You will yep. be rewarded. So I think I just want to point that out anyway. Um, but the quote I'd read was from 133 and it goes as follows. 
If he didn't carry the scent of leaves disintegrating to mud at the bottom of a river, the aroma of the bowl of the bayou, heavy with water and sediment, and the skeletons of small dead creatures, crab, fish, snakes, and shrimp, I would still know he is Rivers by the look of the Rivers boy by the look of him. The sharp nose, the eyes dark as swamp bottom, the way his bones run straight and true as Rivers, indomitable as Cypress. He is Rivers' child. That's when Richie the ghost first sees Jojo. Mm-hmm. And it's the description is worth bringing up there just because we had mentioned this much earlier in the discussion today, but the bayou and the way it is deeply embedded into his character and is sort of a gosh, almost like a rotting force. It's presented as this sort of decay and almost this, I don't know, garbled mess of influences in a sense. Mm-hmm. It, that's what he picks up on first. That's how he identifies him. And that's how he knows it's Jojo. Yeah. Uh, he caught, you know, it's kind of just kind of this rank and rot feeling around it. A lot of the descriptions aren't, you don't get a ton of that cleansing, fresh ocean. Re- you don't get a lot of the symbol or the motif there being, an agent of refreshing you get right. it being an agent of d- destroying or, you know, certainly rotting. And mm-hmm. so I think that that it's just such a well-realized little passage and, and it's such a great introduction to, it's a good outside look at Jojo too, who's a character we know so intimately from the inside that to see a stranger encounter him is very telling. And it gives us another perspective on the family history and what he associates with rivers, which is a character river, which is a character we also don't know super well because we don't get his point of view so yeah anyway i just thought that was a really incredible bit of character work and just not i thought it was a good use of the point of view um whereas there were other moments when i was really hoping this story would do something with the point of view chapters where it didn't show the same event twice but it actually does end up doing that Mm -hmm. and i think i think most readers would find that satisfying because they want the both sides ism of it they're just they just want to know they're like okay well what did he think of it and so I, I didn't I didn't like when they overlapped in that way. It's just my own personal preference, I guess. But And so I thought that was a really good use of the point of view, really illuminating. It, again, really rich language, really beautiful and kind of haunting and just kind of gross. Like there's just a lot of gross <laughs> stuff, you know, gross in the deeply profound way, like racism, but also just gross in the, like, I don't want to smell this. This smells yeah. like death, you know, just like vomit. <laughs> like there's a lot of things in this book that just kind of register that way. Yeah, I think that's great. That's a great quote too to, to bring up um, the the rotting and the death and the illness that's just pervasive throughout. Amanda, did you have any final quotes then before we move to the final segment of this book club? I just had um, one more, and it was just to mm-hmm. point out um, how insightful JoJo is and, and just the general description. Um, yeah, yeah. Her ability to... Uh, really describe the characters and I'll just really quickly read it and we don't even have to discuss it, but um, yeah, yeah, it's about when Michael is leaving Jojo uh, before going to Parchman. And it mm-hmm. says he put his arms around my back and patted once twice, but those pats were so light. They didn't feel like hugs, even though something in his face was pulled tight wrong. Like underneath his skin, he was crisscrossed with tape. Like he would cry. So we have that, perception versus reality but also it's just i think it's a mm-hmm. like your quote it's it's really well done as far as like being descriptive and and kind of unique in the way that she describes michael in that sense yeah yeah it's crisscross with tape is now again there there's just similes on every page of this yeah. book and so it does become at some point a, it's crude to say it this way but it does become a math g- game where you're just thinking well, if she writes 500, 
you know, I don't know how many of them I felt were profound or that really registered with me in a, in a deep way, but it was hundreds. <laughs> I mean, it was, you yeah, know, it was probably sure. at least half of them. Like, <laughs> yeah, the crisscross with tape is just such a, it's so unnatural and kind mm-hmm. of just disturbing. It kind of feels like a horror image. Yeah. It's kind of like taut. It's, you know, tape, it gets really taut and I don't know. Yeah. Something about it is just creepy. It yeah. Kinda, it's like disfiguring. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that feel, but you know, it's, it's a repairing. It's like you're meant to fix something with it, but if mm-hmm. you put too much tape on, you ever seen something that's been too taped? You know what I mean? Or oh, just, yeah. You're like, I get that you tried to fix this, but it looks like shit. You may as well just <laughs> left it broken. Like why, why not just leave it broken? You know, you've taped it so much that it looks disturbing or worse. You know, yeah. It beca- becomes its own form of, uh, of like rot in a way, or just looks terrible mm-hmm. fraying away. Yeah. No, no, it's an excellent one. There's, you know, open a page as we we put it to the test earlier. Open a page, find a simile. I'm telling you, that's that's how reading this was. Let's uh, transition then to our final part of the book club episode. This is when we go to the critical assistance or critical aim section. As I alluded to at the very beginning, we always like to call in outside sources at the end just to get other perspectives. Go to, go to the pros, quote unquote. Though we've been doing this long enough, we're you know we're pros too. We're not getting paid, but yeah, <laughs> come on. I mean, you know, we're we know what we're doing, but no, we like to just go to literary sources for for some analysis and some insight i will happily start i did bring two things here but i don't think i'm gonna read from well i I might read from both one is a review from a a magazine or um scholarly journal maybe i've never encountered called the southern humanities review and the part from it i wanted to talk about was sort of regarding the, the the race aspects and the racial issues in the book i'm gonna read the quote here It says, except for certain obvious clues, like Jojo wearing a hoodie and giving his little sister Kayla a Fisher-Price playset, also the soda at that one house and the Grand Theft Auto and the TV. Not Mm -hmm. a very good, I don't think, I don't like their analysis here is what I'm getting at, but that's okay. Uh, (laughs) The reader could easily suppose the 1920s to be Sing Unburied Sing's setting. The overt racism of Michael's family and the structural racism of Parchment Prison emphasize the fact that aside from surface level details, Jojo's life is not much different from his pops. For example, Jojo is nearly shot by a cop after the car is pulled over. Clearly in the lives of people of color, there has been no real progress toward extinguishing racism or even toward allowing innocent kids like Jojo to feel safe. I think all those points are well taken. I just, when I was reading it, I I did feel like it was situated in a time and place, especially with the meth crisis permeating this whole thing, mm-hmm. like being such a driving force and how you have to read all the characters and their dependency. Now you could just say, well, back in the twenties, they would have been dependent on something else, or I, you know, I don't know what the the issues around maybe alcoholism were back then, or I, who knows. But I, I just didn't agree with that assessment. I, I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was meant to blur in that way and kind uh-huh. of blur the historical lines. I, I didn't find that reading to be compelling. And again, I ju- I know I just casually rifled off a cu- couple other ways that this is very specifically situated. I do feel like the the family is written intentionally to be kind of adrift in time because they're so latched. They're so drawn to this region. They're so stuck that I kind of get that part. I mean, the way they live off the land and stuff, but you know, then there's references. They go to like three grocery stores and buy soda out of a refrigerator. Like they, you know, they're doing modern day ish things and they encounter things. Also the parchment thing. This was interesting too, because the way parchment is presented in the story is a nothing place. They don't even, they're there for like a page. 
That's the thing is it's his memories that we get. We don't actually know what the prison is like at all in the story. Other than Michael says it's very violent here and dangerous and I don't want to be here anymore. That's it. There's no modern depiction of that place at all. It is just a non... So anyway, I just didn't like this reading. I'm not sure how you feel about it, but I just reacted to it strongly. Yeah, I think um, that was also a part of the uh, the criticism that I read from The Atlantic, um, where she was pointing out that, yeah, it seems timeless in that, like, we can't get... That time is fluid in that way and that nothing has really changed. And I think that it's meant to... It's meant to show that there is like time distinctions and that there are differences. But then Richie points out that every time that he would wake up, right, because he would go to sleep and he would wake up, he would say that it would seem like parchment had changed, but in reality, it really hadn't changed. So, and and as far as like the, in, in, like the jail system specific to parchment, perhaps mm-hmm. it hasn't changed. But then when we look at the other characters and the way, I think that it's meant to just more point out that, yeah, it's, it seems different on the outside, but perhaps uh, the deep root of it is that these things that specifically things dealing with race have not changed. I, yeah, I just, I don't buy that. You're right, because there is a passage in there where Richie does say exactly that. Like, he had been stuck there for so long, he barely noticed the changes that it was just this violent, oppressive institution. Mm -hmm. I think then to think of this then, because she names this one in the in the analysis or whatever, the, the family, the Michael's family, wouldn't the mother be the contrast to that? She's on the edge of accepting interracial marriage, but just in, for the sake of love and family, you know, Mm -hmm. she's, she's the one who's promoting it. And then the father is the one who brings it to blows. Like, Mm -hmm. I think, I just think if you read this text and you think, America has racial issues, then you've read the text, you know, you've read it. Like, I don't think there's no way an analysis of this wouldn't think uh, like it says towards the end of her, the quote, there's been no real progress like that. I think you could read into uh, mm-hmm. that. You could read it that way. I think that's very valid, but the, like the no change or like the lost in time thing, I, so many of the specific um, points of tension in this story felt to me specifically historically situated. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe not the cop thing. That is that I guess could be plucked from, you know, from time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the b- underneath that tension is the meth tension, that's a, again just such a specific a, thing yeah. that mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I yeah, again, I certainly when I was reading this the the ghost, the way the histories come back and all that stuff, but but think about it this way, right? Or well, let's uh, let me pose this question. Did you read the history between Pop and or River and Richie to be one tinged with with racial issues. And, you know, I guess I can answer it's explicitly so because when he kills him, it's because of a race mob. Right. You know, that's chasing him. He's, it's a mercy killing. Yeah. 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 And so, but I, I read that as such a, I don't know, in a moral way within pop's own, I don't know, nature or moral compass or something, but I, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it was the racism that forced that issue upon him. It it was the, you know, the racial component that drove that. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I suppose you have to read it that way. I don't know. I just jumped all over you. I asked you a question then I answered it like a real ass. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think about this quote though? Do you like this reading? Did, did it feel ahistorical to you then? Or a, yeah, ahistoric? <sighs> mm, not necessarily, but I think that 
it's meant to draw parallels between yeah. uh, what's happening now and, and what's happened historically, right? Like meth, they specifically yeah, yeah. don't call it meth, right? They don't give it a name. Um, and I think that that's yeah, to right. reflect the drug abuse that um, that has occurred within, well, people of color, but also just people who are are in are impoverished right yeah and, people in, in poverty, rural, yeah. um situations right now it's the meth crisis or whatever but like right, in right. previous years it's been other drugs so i think the the namelessness there even though we know because it, they were talking about cooking it and stuff like that we know what it is right but right. it's specifically unnamed to show that parallel structure i think Mm-hmm. Well, this gets into, let me just throw out my other critical quote then, because I think these things bleed together in a way, mm-hmm. and then I'll happily concede to you. Um, this is a <laughs> quote from a New Yorker review, and that kind of also compared it to Salvage the Bones. It says, the signal characteristic, um, signal, S- single, the signal, I guess, signal makes sense. The signal characteristic of Ward's prose is its lyricism. I'm a failed poet, she has said. The length and music of Ward's sentences owe much to her love of catalogs, extended similes, imagistic fragments, and emphasis by way of repetition, as well as her tendency to cluster conjunctions, especially and, which, you know, you read a sentence like that and you're like, well, damn, all of the things I thought just, they just said them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, yeah. I, I could have said some interesting <laughs> things, but now I can't. They're, they all just wrote them down <laughs> in a list. Like, cool, thanks. Now, I have nothing to say now. Anyway. The effect intensified by use of present tense can be hypnotic. Some chapters sound like fairy tales. And I think if you did want to read it as sort of this is her reimagining a myth myth or fairy tale-esque story just through this lens, through this this specific place in America, this specific racial group, the specific black experience, I would concede to that. I would say, sure, it does feel like it's going... T- it's almost attempting to transcend in that way with the ghost component and some of the animal mm-hmm. stuff that it's becoming this fantastical anytime story. But I, I still found some of the racial tension to be specifically situated. And so, yeah. but I don't know, you know, the more I st- talk as often is the case with myself, the more I disagree with myself, what, you know, <laughs> surprise, because now I'm thinking about it, right? So I'm thinking to the gas station attendants that they encounter. Mm-hmm. And like you pulled that great quote, that very subtle one of just the, the person reacting to him like he is a threat, but right. backing away. And I guess in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if you wrote this novel in the 20s, it wouldn't be that. It would be a sign on the door and then a shotgun. You know, it would mm-hmm. be like, I'm going to kill you if you don't leave, you know, so... I, in a me, in a way, to me, those microaggressions feel like an updated version of this. But I think some of the other elements lend it that fairy tale, vague credibility in a way, and it's just sort of this—I don't know—this haunting tale for all time. So, how do how did you react to that quote? What do you think? It made me so. It's funny because at the end of the novel, maybe not at the end of the novel, but at one point, I remember thinking to myself, for some reason, that re- this reminds me of the Odyssey. Okay. Yeah. Am I completely off base there? <laughs> no. Well, if you look at so Odyssey is what it's a returning. It's a journey first mm-hmm. with a lot of weird interstitial parts mm-hmm. that have. It's like a lot of little micro adventures and happenings and tr- some trouble along the way, and then you end up at home, and home has changed. Right. Home isn't what it was. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I'm being crude, but it checks all of those boxes. <laughs> it literally does all of that stuff. Yeah, and there's also like in in the Odyssey too. There, there's um brushes with death and stuff like that as well right yeah yeah completely i mean they they get trapped by some harpies not harpies what are the ones that sing to you they yeah, harpies. lure mm-hmm. you the men 
Oh, those aren't harpies. Okay. Yeah. And they, they get trapped there. They get trapped yeah, on the yeah. island the, with the locust eaters. They go to the Cyclops Island, which might be the same one and get trapped there for a bit and almost get eaten. Actually, some of them might actually get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely yeah. some harm there. Um, but yeah. And there's like timelessness within the Odyssey as well when they're on, they're trapped on those islands. So if we think of like the timelessness of like when they are um, like within their drug fueled, um, consciousness like with her and michael it's like they created their own island of themselves and it's this timeless thing for them so i think that that's what made me think of the odyssey was just the journey the return home to things that are not what you expected them to be and then like the getting stuck out there on your journey and and, like kind of not realizing the time that's passing you yeah, yeah, and they have their they have like micro and macro encounters, right? Like yeah. they have the the being the uh, Caleb being very sick creates that they have to stop for that. They have to account for that. Yeah. The the lawyer who we never discussed. There's that sort of you think that's a kind of reprieve for them, but then there's some eeriness to it as well. I actually yep. thought that was going to pay off more. I thought there I thought she would twist that and make it a little creepier, or a little more intense, but. I actually thought that part was kind of limp. We didn't way back when in this pod, 10 years, you know, two hours ago, um, <laughs> when I mentioned the kind of like how you read the white supremacy or the the racial tension in this book, that I thought was such a, I thought that was going to be a much harsher presentation of that, or I thought it was going to really expand there, mm-hmm. but it was very subtle. If if not, I don't know if it's even readable in that lens. I mean, that, that yeah, anyway, I don't mean to interject a, for us to revisit that discussion, but I just thought it was telling it didn't come up. It it felt like a a, quite a subtle part of the the story. Why don't I throw it to you finally? What what quote do you have or article did you bring to the critical assistance here, Amanda? Sure. I read from um, the Atlantic. Um, Mm -hmm. Adrian Green wrote um, a uh, a critique on this book. And there were Mm -hmm. a few statements of hers that I found really interesting. Um, She talks about, how the novel kind of explores the the collective black experience and what that means, um, which I thought was really nice. She also mentions that it's a magical realism. Um, so I oh, thought yeah. that was a, yeah. a great point. Um, but so one of the quotes that I pulled specifically um, was this one. It says, Sing Unburied Sing is ultimately about a journey home, one where the characters find something like relief, something like remembrance, something like ease. I took issue with this because of the ending for Leone and, and Michael. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted to know what you thought. Like, do you think of the definition of home in that sense that it's ease and relief? Is that true for all the characters? I think, well, there's, there's the literal, there's of course literal ways to read this and metaphorical in the literal sense. Yes. Just because, the kids are now cared for because they're back with the parents who can care for them. I know that mom, mom the, the grandmother dies at the end. Right. So there's not, but, the, but pop will clearly continue to care for them and explicitly does after she's dead. Uh, that one of the chapters takes place after that. And then for Michael, yes, he's not in prison mm-hmm. for Leone. I, no, I think she's the most haunted figure though. Given leaves. I think that's pretty clear though. Right. The, the scene where mom dies mm-hmm. it, given this, again, this this was this stuff was hard to parse. There were moments in this that were it's very dense with imagery, and it doesn't. It's not like she's trying to write something, you know, as with an outline to transition you from something. So you kind of have to interpret even the way the dialogue flies in that scene. But I was reading it that when she was dying, 
I think Given was going to go with her in a sense. That's why yeah. he speaks and says, it's not your mom. I was interpreting that he's yelling at Richie, who is also trying to be released. Right. And maybe wa- maybe wants to use, I mean, it could be that you have to use another person's death to get released from your own if you are trapped or something. And mm-hmm. so, uh, again, I we can read that. that I don't know if there is a reading there. We don't have to be so literal about it, but something like that anyway. He's clearly about to be released because of the mother. Right. And so I, I he is certainly released. I don't think Richie is though. Jojo turns his back on him. He's still he's still stuck in the snake's entity. You know, mm-hmm. he's still trapped in a way. And so I, I'm reading that just to be that he is bound here and he right. doesn't get to go to the, the place he has visions of, Richie. So I think there's something like ease. But certainly not universally. Certainly not all of the characters have such an ending, I, I don't think. Yeah. I think th- I like the last sentence of that from that quote, which is, it's an unending process, she suggests, from which the deceased aren't, aren't shielded. Yeah. That part, the unendingness of it is perhaps maybe the reading I like the most, which is right. that I think you can't have Leone be in there like she is at the, and have her conclusion, this infantile dependency that she has and think that she is at ease in any way. Right. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's uh, the reading I enjoy. How did you, what, what do you take issue with there specifically? Well, I was just thinking specifically of Leone and Michael, but then I thought about um, the quote that you pulled earlier about Michael is her home. And in the end she is with Michael, even if she's not with, you know, she's still uneasy with pop and she's still uneasy with jojo and kayla she has in the end what she wants which is michael which she describes as her home so i suppose that that quote is fitting in that way yeah if we if we interpret her as sort of trapped within that conflict then yes that is her home was there anything else from that article that stood out to you any other reads or analyses that were worth talking about uh, yeah, sure. There was um, a couple other things, but um, I wanted to point out, um, she says throughout there, throughout, there's no escaping words, political rendering of American history. And I think this ties back to our discussion um, of the first quote that you pulled for this section. She uses a haunting magical realist style to masterfully warp two of life's most inflexible realities, time and death. Her book seems to ask whether a family or a nation can atone for any inequities that remain well and alive um of parchment farm also known as mississippi state penitentiary serves as the novel's linchpin on this front linking the oppressive conditions of the past when prison sentences more closely resembled uh legalized slavery and modern day incarceration so i thought that this tied really nicely with your our previous discussion on the quote that you had pulled oh yeah okay yeah Yeah, no certainly it does i think Yeah, haunted and haunting is the word. I know earlier we said things like just kind of gross or rotting. I think both could be both could be fitting in their own ways and their own descriptions. Yeah, no, those quotes are excellent. Mm -hmm. I don't think I I was going to bring up one more quote from the New Yorker piece about animals because the quote is the episode is a piece is of a piece with Ward's treatment of animals elsewhere. She's unsentimental and sometimes brutal about the necessity of their deaths, but also presents them as quasi-mystical portals between the world of human affairs and the indifference of nature, which this this book throws some real twists with the way it uses the 
what would you call it? the transporting spirits, the fairy spirits of the the snake bird? I mean, yeah. that when that is injected into the story, which is past halfway, right? Yeah. When Richie comes in. Yeah. I mean, that really does throw, I this book without it, I think would be as rewarding, dense and complex, but that really ramps it up. I think you have to really start to read. There, there's, you know, more psychedelic mm-hmm. moments in Richie's chapters and segments so i don't know if i have some point on this just to point out that yeah i think that quasi mysticism in in, for me elevates it because it adds in elements that i i enjoy that can't easily be explained away but i could see being Mm -hmm. sort of baffling because it's very sudden you know when richie shows up well yeah i I noticed it with um jojo too and it was actually my other question that we didn't um go over was uh jojo's ability to communicate and understand with animals yeah Um, and so i i know that ma'am and kayla and um even leone to a certain extent have like this close tie with nature where they can they see things and hear things that other people don't hear and see but and right, she and ma'am right. says that it's specific to the women in the family, but then Jojo has that gift and even has like, it's slightly different in that he can really understand animals, um, which I found interesting, but I wasn't sure like how, how that was supposed to really tie in with everything else. Yeah. It's a challenging question. I, and I think the simple read, which doesn't have to be the wrong one would be that it just shows his hypersensitivity in his life that he mm-hmm. is just a young person who, you know, he has this weird empathy with animals, but he has it with people too, as it with his sister for whom he's the basically primary caretaker throughout yeah. the entire story. But yeah, he just has a, I don't know, you know, a, some kind of, I, and that, that does lead to questions of, does he have some kind of, is he tuned into the spiritual realm too? I mean, he sees the ghost, which right. not many people can do as the grandmother tells us. So it could just be that he is in tuned with that, but yeah, his, his sort of passive peaceful nature and almost pacifist in a way, peaceful right. nature is, I mean, it's really pronounced throughout the whole story. And yeah, that extends to animals. He has obviously such a revulsion to killing the goat gets sick. Mm-hmm. And so another person who throws up, does everyone throw up in this story by the end of this story? I don't think river does. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't think he does. I, but mom does when she's sick. Mm hmm. In the bed, or if she doesn't, then she basically, I mean, you know, yeah, she was she just basically does, illness, if yeah. not literally, she's like retching at some point or yeah. struggling to breathe. Yeah, I think all of the characters, does Misty at maybe some point secondhand? Uh, she, uh, I think when she had her head hanging out the window at one point, she's like she mentions about it. to throw up. And yeah. she mentions that she did it a lot when she was younger. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know why that's like the the one weird motif I've cli- I've just I've planted my flag on in this in this podcast, but yeah. it really was striking to me. I mean, me it was a, a lot of sickness, right? Even Al, yeah. the guy we yeah. never really talked about, he seemed a little off because he was so sweaty. And mm-hmm. Jojo yeah, noticed that right. he was like, "Why is he so sweaty?" And like, yeah, it was because he's messed out. Is <laughs> yeah. the, is the, is the, well, again, is the literal. That's just the in-text <laughs> answer. I don't, you know, what it means. <laughs> and his figure and representation in the story is is worth discussion. But yeah, no, it's because yeah, he's he's the lawyer who gets to do the meth and not go to jail. Yep. So yeah, good way to go. <laughs> good to be good to be a, a per- person with a position of power and wealthy in society mm-hmm. and white. It uh, certainly does not hurt. And it allows you to do meth at your leisure. Any final wrap-up thoughts here, Amanda? There's some other quotes we could discuss, but I feel like we've done 
quite a diligence on this one. I feel like we've tapped into, and the funny yeah. thing is I mentioned this way at the beginning. I said I had nerve. This was like the first one I've been nervous about. I still don't I still feel nervous talking about this because I just feel like there's so many things. As soon as you unwrap something, you just find out that you misread or underthought something else. You know, like yeah. I, we came into the question segment and I said, like, I don't even think I read this through the lens of like white supremacy or racial issues. And then by the end of this, that's like the most absurd thing ever. And I knew when I would say it, it would be absurd, <laughs> but it was true that just like by the end of it, I didn't, I didn't end the novel thinking I have felt a coherent thing about whiteness in America. I mean, it, and so, but now through our discussion, there's a million new things I've thought and mm -hmm. have considered. So it's just that kind of book, you know, I think I, you have to admire it, right? Did you overall come away thinking, um, was it, is it a national book award winner in your mind? For sure. I really enjoyed this book and I think that it, uh, creates a, a lot of opportunity to have all kinds of discussions. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's certainly layered and it deserves the she gets a lot of William Faulkner comparisons, I think, because yeah. they're Miami, you know, lineage and his really dense stream of consciousness style kind of matches up with hers. Hers is a lot more kind and I think even less straightforward, if I can if I can even say that's been a bit since I've had to study Faulkner. But like, I think hers is even harder to unwrap in a sense, just because of the sheer amount of image and, and rhetoric and, mm -hmm. you know, figurative language that's tossed at the reader. It, it does ask a lot of you. So if you're intrigued and you listened to all this discussion and did not read the book somehow, again, congratulations. Thanks for listening through to the end. But <laughs> yeah, I think at least you'll know now whether it's a, the kind of a puzzle box of a story that you'll want to dive into. Not yeah. in the plot sense. I hate puzzle box plots. This is more of a meaning and interpretation puzzle boxes, you know, many things to unpack. And any final thoughts? I feel like I asked you this, Amanda, but any final word on the on the story or the novel? If not, you can certainly introduce what we'll be reading next. Ah, so for next month, we will be reading um, what's called Octavia's Brood, which is a an anthology of short stories. And it is a reference to last month's reading, which is um, mm -hmm. Octavia Butler's novel Parable of the Sower. And in fact, it's mentioned yep. in the introduction and stuff. Um, but it's a compilation of sci-fi short stories. I think there's 22 okay. short stories. So you could read one a day and finish it. Um, yeah, by the time we do. Probably, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and it focuses on, and it's very current, um, and it focuses on the what's going on today essentially for minorities all okay. minorities yeah it's sort of so we're broadening in two ways with this pick because we this is yeah. in in the series if we even want to call it a series but our current you know aim or goal it's in that we are trying to focus on or we've been focusing on black american authors and them writing about experiences related to that to that life and that history this is broadening it because not only are there going to be 22 authors but many of them as you said are people of color but not specifically black americans people that would not mm -hmm. identify that way i is that right yeah that's correct yeah yeah and so we're you know we're going to broaden the scope here i don't know if that'll i think going ahead I'm not sure if we can, we'll revisit the sort of mission statement of what we're doing, but this feels very much in line. I'm a hundred percent on board with this. It'll hopefully we'll see some new interesting perspectives and can have new discussion points. One thing off the mic that Amanda and I have talked about a lot, especially after the Colson Whitehead one was we just don't want to, the vision of this is not just to pick slave adjacent narratives over and over again. It feels, 
I don't know, it's so crucial, but also so reductive. And I feel like that's the one thing Americans have a pretty clear, we have pretty clear sight on, on that mm-hmm. as a, an event. I don't think we have clear sight at all on what, from when it ended on. I think that's when things become muddled and people's readings of events become very twisted and, and problematic, I suppose. But so anyway, our, our mission here isn't just to continue to cover books that are, here's another slave narrative or adjacent to that. And so I think now I look forward to getting back into some genre fiction with sci-fi mm-hmm. and other stories like that. That'll be cool. And I'm glad we'll see some other perspectives, other points of view on just race issues in, in the United States. Yeah. So yeah, a welcome addition and it'll give us a, a nice change up, but we'll revisit. I'm sure we'll get back to other stories, uh, longer and nonfiction too, by specifically related to and by black American authors and that experience too. So that's still part of the mission statement, but this feels like a nice way to just change it up and, see how it goes. Any final thoughts today, Amanda, for the people before we sign out of this book club episode? Nope, I'm good. Fantastic. Well, we hope you join us next time. We should expect that episode in October, which feels mind-blowing to say, but it's 2020 and time just whatever doesn't exist. It's irrelevant. <laughs> Apparently, this will be the next one will be in October, though. So <laughs> basically the end of the year. Uh, yada yada. Um, thanks so much for listening, though. We do appreciate you checking out on these book club episodes. And until next time, we will see you between the books and the covers and the sheets. We'll see you soon.